our Father, we do now draw near to you in, in faith. Lord, with the same confession on our lips that Christ is a great Savior for great sinners. We pray this morning that you would stir our minds by your word to remember, to consider your great faithfulness, not only to, to people like Jacob, but, but to us, to this church. And Father, that, that consideration of your faithfulness would then fuel our faith, that we would look ahead to yet what we wait for from your promises and to do that with, with great assurance. Lord, we pray that you would do this by your word, by your spirit, in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, since our passage is quite long, we won't have the, the normal opportunity to read all of it. Instead, I'll be reading sections and, and summarizing the rest. So, so before we read, I think it'll help us just to, to have an orientation of what's in our passage, since we won't read it here all at the start. So look down in your Bibles with me. Our passage is framed at beginning and end with the same command. So, so if you're in 48, look just up to the end of chapter 47, verses 29 through 31. What we ended on, if you were here with us last week, Jacob is here making Joseph swear that he will not bury him in Egypt, but back in Canaan, right? There at the end of verse 29, do not bury me in Egypt, but in verse 30, let me lie with my fathers. Well, so Jacob dies in, in chapter 49. So if you flip ahead to the end of chapter 49, look in verse 29 through 31, the end of our passage, he commands his sons again to bury him with his fathers. The same command. You can see it there in 29, I'm about to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. The, father, the, the cave where his, his fathers were buried. So, so this command is really, really framing our passage. Well, then our passage in between is the last words of, of Jacob. He knows that the end is near and he is preparing for it. But he is doing far more than just merely preparing for his burial site. The, the bulk of these two chapters is Jacob blessing his sons. If you're reading from the ESV this morning, you might see... The heading of chapter 48, Jacob blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. The heading of chapter 49, Jacob blesses his sons. These two chapters are his final blessings on his sons before he dies. And in them, Jacob recounts God's faithfulness and places his faith in God's still future promises. Jacob's perspective will will shape our main point this morning. So our main idea, if you're taking notes, this one sentence that will guide us in this passage this morning, it is this. Look ahead in faith because of God's past faithfulness and God's future promises. The lesson for us to learn in these two chapters as we study Jacob's blessings of his sons, look ahead in faith because of God's past faithfulness and God's future promises. Promises. It is my prayer that we would adopt the same perspective that, that Jacob had as he reviewed his life and the future of his family. One last time, we would look ahead in faith because of God's past faithfulness and God's future promises. We'll have three points today to, to hang our thoughts on. First, a surprise adoption. 
that in all of chapter 48, 1 through 22. Second, a prophetic farewell, that in chapter 49, 1 through 28. And finally, briefly, to conclude, a hopeful departure, that in chapter 49, 29 through 33. A surprise adoption, a prophetic farewell, and a hopeful departure. Well, we'll begin, finally, by hearing God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Read with me. Genesis 48, starting in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 7. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in his bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. The word of the Lord. Well, our first point, beginning here in these first seven verses, brothers and sisters, number one, a surprise adoption, a surprise adoption. To remind you of context, Jacob and the full number of his descendants have, have made the trek down into Egypt at the invitation of the governor of the land, Joseph. Joseph has arranged for them to settle in the land of Goshen, a separate land where they can raise their flocks and be preserved as a nation rather than being assimilated into, into the Egyptian population. And all this, their journey, their trek down into Egypt with the promise, God appearing to Jacob at last after nearly 30 years, God speaking to Jacob that he will be with him, that he will bring him down and bring him up again, and he will make him into a great nation there in Egypt just as he had promised to, to Abram and to Isaac. So Genesis 48, our chapter this morning, takes place 17 years after settling. We learned back in chapter 47 that, that Jacob was 130 years when he entered into Egypt, and he dies at 147. So here, in this last moment of his life, he is 147, 17 years after the journey into Egypt. And what we have in this chapter is what I call a surprise adoption. What we read there in verse 5, speaking Jacob to, to Joseph, he says, Jacob, your two sons, sorry, Joseph, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. I'll grant it's an odd scene. It's fair to wonder why. Why is Jacob doing this? Well, there are a few reasons. I want to start by just looking at how he surrounds this adoption. The adoption in verse 5 is surrounded 
in verses 3 and 4 before, in verse 7 after, with a recounting of God's, God's faithfulness. Verses 3 and 4 recount what happened to Jacob recorded in, in Genesis 28. We call it the vision of Jacob's ladder. You might remember Jacob was on the run there, absolutely alone. Literally, he says, only with a staff. Why was he on the run? Well, his, his brother Esau had vowed to kill him because Jacob had stolen his blessing. So in the wilderness here in Genesis 28, alone, God appeared to Jacob and, and promised ja what Jacob summarizes there in, in verses 3 and 4, that God would promise him the land and, and the promise of offspring. Genesis 28 describes it as the dust of the earth spreading west and east, south and, and north. What Jacob is doing here is remembering God's past faithfulness, seeing how God has grown him from a, a solitary man on the run in the wilderness to now a patriarch of a family of 70 enjoying abundance in Egypt. So I think that's why in verses 3 and 4, he recounts God's faithfulness. It's the spirit of his adoption of Joseph's sons to be his own. The one tribe of, of Joseph, right, only Joseph is counted among the sons of, of Jacob, is being multiplied into two, now Ephraim and Manasseh. It's a recognition of God's past faithfulness to multiply his family. And it's also an act of faith, knowing that God will continue to be faithful and grow his family. We can see this clearly in, in verse 16. Look down with me at the end of verse 16. It's the blessing that Jacob will speak over these sons of, of Joseph, Ephraim, and Massa. The last part of that phrase, let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So he's blessing them with a similar similar growth as Jacob himself has experienced. I think that's, in, in fact, why Jacob continues after this adoption in verses 5 and 6 to recall the death of, of his wife, Rachel, in verse 7. If you keep in mind, that, that scene in Genesis 28 happens when he was leaving Canaan, and now he is recording what happens when he comes back to Canaan. It's a nice close on his journey. And, and what is it that happened on his way back in Genesis 35? Well, there, first of all, God reiterated the earlier promises to Jacob. But it's also where he experienced his greatest loss, the death of his beloved wife, Rachel. His return to Canaan was not marked by triumphal entry, but by an experience of his deepest pain and loss yet. So this adoption framed by first the remember of God's faithfulness in the midst of his, his running, but the disappointment in the midst of his return is his way of saying that the promises are yet to be fulfilled. They do not yet number as the dust of the earth. He is instead looking forward in faith and therefore including Joseph's sons as his own as he hopes for that promise to come. It is then an act of faith for Jacob to look ahead past his own death with the assurance in his illness that these promises will come to pass, but not for him, for his sons 
and in the generations to come. Jacob here is able to look ahead in faith because of God's past faithfulness and God's future promises. I think his, his faith is nowhere in this chapter seen more clearly than expressed in the words of blessing that he speaks over Joseph in verses 15 and 16. Read, read those with me in verses 15 and 16. Genesis 48, 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Do you see it, saints? Again, Jacob recounting God's past faithfulness, this reference to God walking with Abraham and, and Isaac, his grandfather and father. God didn't walk with Abraham because he was a wonderful man. God called Abram when he was a nobody, pagan, moon worshiper in Ur and has remained faithful steadfast in his faithfulness to his people, despite all of Abraham's failures, doubting God's promises. So it is with confidence that Jacob blesses these sons, that he will be the God of his sons and their sons after him. There in verse 15 is, you might note, the first time the Bible calls God shepherd. Jacob himself was a shepherd. He spent lots of time with the flocks. And he has seen in that parallel how God has been his shepherd, leading him, protecting him, feeding him through great difficulties and trials. This becomes, as you know, a, a consistent testimony of, of the Bible, most famously for us in Psalm 23. David saying, the Lord is my shepherd, that God is a faithful shepherd to all of his people. That's because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We, too, run into great danger and are, are always getting lost. But in the parable of, of Luke 15, Jesus describes himself like a shepherd who leaves the 99, who goes after the one and when found, lays him on his shoulders, it says, rejoicing. That is the God who is our shepherd. The confidence that you see in Jacob here in, in verse 15 is, is our confidence that the Savior, like a shepherd, leads us all, he says, the days of our life. That you, saints, can look ahead and know that he will be with you through and even past the end of your life. Further, Jacob says that, that God is the angel who has redeemed him from all evil. Saints, we have to, to realize that that word redeem does not mean that, that evil will not happen to him. No, it means that, that in the evil, God transcends it with his greater good. Jacob can testify to this by his experience here at the end. 
He himself called his life few and, and evil. But God has always worked good in the evil, redeeming him, he says, from, from all evil. You think of it. What Jacob suffered, God meant for good. So Jacob now at the end of his life can say this not as theory, as something he read in a Bible textbook, but as true in fact. Jacob is absolutely confident of this. You can look with me at verse 21 where he says to to Joseph in the full assurance of faith, behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. There is no question of this for Jacob. Though he will not see it, he knows it will happen. If you're an older saint, I'd let you decide for yourself if you're in that category, let me thank you for doing the same. I personally have been so often encouraged by your testimony of how God has been your shepherd too all the days of your life. And now he has redeemed you likewise from, from all evil. Let me encourage you now to, to speak more about how God has acted in goodness and faithfulness. When you, when you speak that way, you give a gift to the younger that we cannot get for ourselves. You understand that, right? If you look around this room and, and consider most of the people around you as young, please be like Jacob and frequently tell others about God's past faithfulness. Because the young among us can only affirm these truths theoretically. We can know and, and see that the Bible teaches them, but we have to experience them with years. It is you that can affirm them, not just theoretically, but because of your experience. So let me encourage you to be like Jacob, to raise up the next generation, to hope in God's continued faithfulness as he has been to you, so he will continue to be by adding in your testimony. Well, we started by wondering why. Why is it that, that Jacob adopts Joseph's sons? I, I think the final reason that these two sons of Joseph are adopted are a way of actually blessing Joseph himself. Did you notice when we read in verse 15, he blesses Joseph and says to his sons. They, Ephraim and Massa, are by this blessing included among the 12 tribes of Israel. They receive an inheritance among the other sons of Jacob. So in this way, Joseph is actually receiving a double blessing, twice what all his other brothers receive. The, the Bible later explains that, that actually Joseph, though he's one of Jacob's youngest sons, is, is actually receiving the blessing here of the firstborn rather than Reuben. It's told for us in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, recounting uh, Reuben's line, it says, Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the eldest son. 
Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Now when it says Reuben defiled his couch, that doesn't mean he, he threw up on it or something. Well, we'll think about that in our next point. All, but suffice to say for now that, that Joseph here is receiving the birthright of, of the firstborn in this double blessing to his sons now adopted by his father. So we can answer, why is Jacob doing this? It's because Joseph has received the birthright of the firstborn, the double blessing given to Joseph. In the remaining verses, the verses we, we don't have time to read, we have the actual ritual of Jacob blessing the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But, but Joseph is displeased, it says in verse 17, because Jacob gives the younger the greater blessing, crossing his hands with his right hand on Ephraim rather than Manasseh. We shouldn't be surprised of this at this point. This is exactly how God has worked throughout the book of Genesis. God chose Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob himself over Esau, Joseph here over Reuben, now Ephraim over Manasseh. Of course, both sons are receiving a blessing, in fact, the same blessing, if you noticed, but not in the way that, that Joseph expects. I think it's important for us to, to highlight here, saints, God's blessing is a gift bestowed on those who cannot claim it as a right, as it might be for the firstborn. God does not bless people who deserve it because... No one does. Joseph himself isn't even receiving this blessing because of his track record, as, as good as it is. It's the other way around. His track record of faithfulness from Genesis 37 on is evidence of God's prior blessing. Friends, the blessings that are found in Christ aren't only for those who deserve them. God's blessings come to us as a gift, not a right. No one can make a rightful claim to them. He bestows blessings as a gift of grace, as an act of unmerited favor. It is as the well-known verses in Ephesians 2 put it, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a, a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Neither can Joseph boast that he has worked. It's his faithfulness that has earned his sons this blessing. It was not him. Joseph himself would tell you it was God, God who was with him, God who gave him the wisdom, who showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. And the same is true for us, brothers and sisters. Not, none of us can say that we have worked for God's blessing. We can only receive it as a gift freely offered to all because of His mercy and not our works. If you ever find yourself envious of the gifts and blessings of your brother or sister in Christ, remember that they were given by God's grace for His own glory. Not theirs and not yours. God's blessings are 
by grace through faith and not by works. And that is, in fact, the continued theme that we will see in chapter 49. Jacob continues to bless his sons, now all 12 gathered to him, and we still find it a message of the triumph of grace as Jacob looks ahead in faith because of God's past faithfulness and God's future promises. So our our second point, brothers and sisters, a prophetic farewell. Number two, a prophetic farewell. This in, in chapter 49, verses 1 through 28. I hope you still have your Bibles open. As you scan through this chapter, you will see the bulk of it has its lines indented. What we have here is, is more like poetry rather than narrative. You might notice that each paragraph starts with the name of, of one of his sons or, or two, as the case is in verse 5 of Simeon and Levi. To each, he gives a blessing fitting to each son. But we're going to start at the end. We're going to look at verse 28 as a summary of what he is doing here in chapter 49. So read with me, chapter 49, verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. So it's as verse 28 says, here we have all 12 12 tribes of Israel and their suitable blessing. Certainly, uh, as we read them, some of them don't feel like blessings, but that's actually an important point. You know, when, for example, if you recall, when, when Jacob stole the blessing from Esau, there was no blessing left for Esau. He was cut off from the line of promise, no longer among the people of God. But that is not the case here. All 12 are still included in the blessing. What has been, if you think of a tree, a single trunk, blessing only for one son, Isaac, and then Jacob, now splits into a tree of 12 branches here in chapter 49. Each of the 12 now a part of God's plan and people, and that in spite of their sin. But these blessings are more than mere wishes. What we have is actual prophecy. Jacob here speaking by the Spirit, predicting the future. So read with me now, verse 1. Chapter 49, back at the start, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. That phrase, in the days to come, is is always used with an act of prophecy. Jacob understands that what he is pronouncing here is is prophecy. He is foretelling what is to come. Scripture is, is filled with these prophecies, predictions for the future. We have seen a number of them here in the book of Genesis but, but the Bible teaches in, in 2 Peter that the prophecy, like what we have here in 49, is, is not produced by the will of man. This isn't Jacob thinking of what he'd really like for his sons and, and therefore constraining God to do it by his speaking. No, men like Jacob spoke from God as they were moved by the Spirit. Jacob speaking God's will for each of these sons as prophecy. We will work through some examples of this and see that, in fact, 
These prophecies of the 12 tribes all come to pass in the history of Israel. They are, in fact, God's promises for the future. And as in chapter 48, Jacob here recounts the past and places his faith in God's still future promises, what is to come for his nation. So let's look at the first together of Reuben in verses 3 and 4. Chapter 49, verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed that you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Well, Jacob restates what he saw in the last chapter, that Reuben will not have the preeminence as the firstborn, instead given to Joseph. This reference to going up to his father's bed, the defiling of the couch, is a reference to what Reuben had done in chapter 35, where we read, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. So because of his past sexual sin, Reuben's place of prominence was forfeit. It's similar for Simeon and Levi of what we read starting in verse 5, who were in fact his second and, and third born all by, by Leah. So continue reading with me in verse 5. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men. And in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen, cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, here again, he's recounting history, but also making a promise, placing his faith in God's action in the future. Here, Jacob is referring to the events of Genesis 34, where Simeon and Levi, in, in violence and anger, kill all the males in Shechem in return for the rape of their, their sister, Dinah. While certainly they were right to be outraged by this act of evil, their deceptive slaughter was not justice, but greater evil. You'll notice also in verse 7 that, that it's not they that are cursed, but their anger. Cursed be their anger. And that Jacob predicts that they will be divided and scattered in Israel. Well, do you know that this is exactly what happens. Simeon, when he inherits land, it will be in the midst of Judah's inheritance, like, if you know it, Lesotho in the middle of South Africa, and will eventually be absorbed. Levi won't get an inheritance at all in the land, but as priests, they will be scattered among all the tribes of Israel. Later in history, Levi's tribe is chosen as priest because of Phineas's zeal for God. You can read of that in Numbers 25. So it is exactly as, as Jacob prophesies here, as, as God says that they will be divided in Jacob and scattered in Israel. Notice, though, saints, God's faithfulness even, even in this, not only to fulfill his word as it will come to be, but that God is gracious to keep Simeon and Levi with Reuben as the tribes of Israel despite their sin. Again, 
God's blessing is a gift bestowed upon those who have no right to claim it. But then you might be wondering, if you've been with us in our study of Genesis, why isn't it the same for who's next? In verse 8, Judah. Judah next in verses 8 through 12 also had a past pockmarked by sin. You might remember. He is the one who mistreated and lied to his daughter-in-law Tamar, promising his third son to her in marriage but never giving it. And then he sought her cruel execution by fire for a crime that he was literally guilty of committing with her. That story back in Genesis 39 concludes with Judah's confession and repentance. And we have seen in the time since Judah's transformation. He has emerged as a a selfless and courageous leader among his brothers, offering himself in the place of Benjamin when he was at risk out of love for his father, even though his father had not changed. So you might be thinking, maybe that's the reason that Judah gets this blessing. He's really changed and we've seen it. He's earned, wait, earned blessing from God. No, there is no reason Judah deserves any different than Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Repentance does not merit blessing. But Judah here receives one of the greatest promises in Genesis. Not that you keep one, but if you did, you should include these in your top 10 list of prophecies of the coming Messiah, called here the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Read with me verses 8 through 12 of this, this promise. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vestures in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Well, there's a lot of Old Testament poetry in there that we have to work through, but, but I just want to point out that God, by his sovereign grace, has chosen the tribe of Judah to be the line through which he would bring a future king. And we have to, to say it, it should be evident that he did not, Judah did not deserve this. He did not earn this right. Again, God is working through sinful people just like Abraham and Isaac, and Jacob, and Judah to bring about the universal blessing that he has promised. In you, all nations shall be blessed. This privilege is not for Judah to boast in, but to give God glory, working redemption through the mess. Judah and Tamar would be in the line of the Messiah. So saints, we should note here, whatever particular gifts or blessings you have, maybe like Judah here, it is not due to some suitability in you better than your brothers and sisters. Or I should say, maybe more accurate, 
to what the Apostle Paul teaches. Your suitability for the gifts and blessings is also due to the grace of God. Even particular faithfulness and diligence, Paul says, is but the grace of God that is with you. What do you have that you have not received? If then you have received it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? But like I said, these these verses here for Judah are prophetic words looking to God's promise for the future. Look with me back at verse 8. Jacob looks ahead to a time when Judah would be praised by his brothers. It says with victory over his enemies and his brothers bowing down to him there in verse 8. Now, if you remove the name Judah and read verse 8 again, who would you think that he might be talking about? Blank, enter name here. Your brothers shall praise you. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. I don't mean to trick you. That sounds like a description of of Joseph. That's what we recall the the dream was that Joseph reserved back in Genesis 37, that your brothers shall bow down to you. And as we've preached through the story of Joseph, we have time and time again shown how the pattern of his life, his humility, his suffering, and his eventual resurrection, as it were, to the right hand of the Father, pointed us to the Messiah. And I think that's here what Jacob is saying the same. One is to come in the line of Judah who will be like what we saw in the story of Joseph from the line of Judah. These verses are a messianic promise comparing the one to come in the line of Judah to Joseph. He is as we continue, a warrior king described in verse 9 as a, a lion, a fierce animal, king of the jungle, right? Always compared to royalty. He is a, a conquering king. Verse 8 says that his hand shall be on the neck of his enemies. He will, in verse 10, it says, have a scepter and a, a ruler's staff. Again, symbols of his, his kingship. And it continues in verse 10 that he will have this throne eternally until it says all tribute comes to him, all homage, not just when his brothers, but all peoples, obedience of the peoples come to him. The final two verses there, 11 and 12, I think might be the most confusing, but I think they describe his prosperity as king and his, his beauty. Verse 11, he is describing prosperity such great prosperity that he can tie his animal to the best vine in the vineyard, the choice vine. That's like, for example, lighting a fire using a $100 bill, since a donkey would immediately start eating those grapes. But that means nothing to him. The choice vine, I'll let the donkeys have it. I have plenty to spare. He is so rich, it says, that he washed his garments in wine. He is doing his laundry in the wine. He has so much of it. Verse 12, our depiction of his beauty. You might not think of dark eyes like wine and teeth whiter than milk as descriptions of beauty, but that is is Old Testament imagery of his beauty. Saints, this is an exalted promise that we have here in verses 8 through 12. He's not just saying that this one to come in the line of Judah will rule Israel, though one will do that. 
He is promising that from Judah will come one who will rule all people. If we had another hour, we could trace this promise, the, the purple thread of royalty, through the whole line of Scripture. You might remember earlier in Genesis that the Abraham was promised that kings would come from him. And now we learn that it's narrowed through the line of Abraham through Judah. And, and you will know from your knowledge of Scripture that eventually Israel does have a king, David, who is from the line of Judah. And later in David's life, he receives the promise in 2 Samuel 7 of another coming king, David's descendant, who would come in the line of Judah, in the line of David, to reign as king forever. So when, saints, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the city of David, when he comes announcing that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the fullness of time has arrived, it is because this eternal king has arrived. You know, if you put the gospels together and figure out which of Jesus' miracles were first, it was to provide wine as abundant as water in the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. So much he could wash his clothes in it. But particularly the prosperity that we see in Jesus' ministry is, is spiritual. The abundance that Christ brings in his first coming is lavish grace and rich storehouse of mercy for sinners. Jesus is the true and faithful Israel who, unlike all of the 12, never sinned. He can unlock storehouses of grace because of his merit, because he earned it by his righteous life. No, Reuben didn't. Simeon and Levi didn't, not even Judah did. He alone deserves blessings from God. That is, in fact, I think, the picture that the, the verses that bless Joseph is pointing us to, starting in verse 22. It pictures him as a, a righteous man who remains faithful through suffering. We won't read the intervening blessings. They're pretty unexceptional promises compared to Judah and, and to Joseph, like for example, Dan, if you look Dan in verses 16 through 18, it says, Dan will judge his people, fulfilled in his descendant Samson from the tribe of Dan who judges his people, or that Asher will have rich food. It's Joseph's that is quite different, starting in verse 22. It's, it's not only the longest, but it seems to include an avalanche of blessing, mentioning that word bless or blessing six times. So read with me of Joseph's blessing in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile, by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be upon the head of Joseph 
and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Verse 22 describes Joseph as a fruitful tree, so fruitful that he grows over the walls of the orchard. It may be a reference to his numerous descendants. We do learn that, that the Joseph tribe grows large. But it sounds more to me like Psalm 1. Psalm 1 describes a man planted by a stream of water. It says, in all that he does, he prospers because he meditates on God's word day and night. That was, in fact, what Joseph was like in his life, prospering wherever he went because he kept in mind God's word given to him by a dream. So I think that verses 22 through 24 are recounting Joseph's life. Verse 23 references the archers attacking. It's a reference to Joseph's suffering, not literal arrows, but the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, of hatred, slavery, and years of imprisonment. Yet, though the archers attacked and harassed him, yet in verse 24, his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. He remained faithful through the suffering by God's grace. He was faithful through it all by the help of the mighty one, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. I think these verses are painting a picture for us of a righteous and faithful man who suffers. I don't think this is a prophecy of a specific event or even person in the tribe of Joseph, but simply a pattern in the Bible of a righteous sufferer like Moses, like David, like Daniel, and of course, its fulfillment in the righteous sufferer, Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is not only, verses 8 through 12, the king from Judah, but verses 22 and following, the righteous sufferer who came to die in the place of his subjects that he might pour out on us the blessings, it says, of heaven above, forgiveness and eternal life in his blood. This is exactly how we see the Bible end in Revelation 5, our call to worship this morning. That the one who is worthy to open the scroll, that is the plan of God's purposes for history, the one who is worthy to open that scroll is, it says, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who has conquered, has conquered. But he is worthy, Revelation 5, because he is also the lamb who suffered, the lamb who was slain and ransomed a people by his blood. He is the conquering king, and the righteous sufferer. That's Genesis and Revelation. It is amazing to me, saints, that the 66 books of the Bible written over thousands of years by more than 35 authors tell one story of Jesus. There is no greater argument in my mind, if you're not convinced, for the divine source of the words of the Bible than their inexplicable, inexplicable unity across all that diversity. Jacob here in chapter 49 speaks as a prophet. He speaks from the one divine author of the Bible, God, carried along by the Spirit, even better than he knows, looking ahead but only dimly to the future. And saints, 
these promises that we have in chapter 49 are so expansive, they are in fact promises we still wait for. Yes, Christ has come. He has conquered by the blood. He has been the righteous sufferer. But we still await the return to Eden where our physical abundance will match our current spiritual abundance, where we all, every person, bows the knees in obedience to this king. You know, one of the major themes of the book of Genesis is blessing. God made the word full of it. The first words he speaks to Adam and Eve, God blessed them and said. It was lost. This blessing was lost in the fall. And the story of Genesis is God restoring that blessing through the line of Abraham. I will bless you, and through you all nations will be blessed. It has begun, but it is not yet finished. There is still blessing yet to come. Especially if you're here joining us in worship this morning and, and don't have a faith in, in these promises let me in, invite you to, to turn away. There are so many competing promises in this world that encourages you to trust in yourself or the power of other people. Instead, let me encourage you to place your trust in Christ's death, his promise to restore blessing and the blessing that we were all made for, to have a personal and intimate relationship with God. It's as we sing, yours can be keys to Zion City, where beside the king we walk. We walk now by faith, but then by sight. All who trust in him can depart this world in hope, knowing that Jacob, with Jacob, full blessing is yet ahead. Our third and brief point, our conclusion, saints, a hopeful departure Chapter 49, verses 29 through 33. Number three, a hopeful departure. This passage ends, as we saw, with Jacob's death in verse 33, without any of the promises that he just prophesied realized. It's as we read in, in Hebrews 11, in, in verse 13, that said, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Jacob saw these promises by faith from afar, but never received them. But he died in faith looking ahead. Read with me the final verses of our passage, starting in verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephraim the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Again, we see the same pattern. Jacob rehearsing God's past faithfulness. God granting to Abraham a, a plot in the land, a deposit. And Jacob remembers all those who have died in faith before him and were buried there in faith. What is most amazing to me, saints, 
is that here he is in Jacob or in Egypt with all the extravagant tombs there, still world famous to this day, and he would be rather buried in a cave because he is looking ahead in faith. Jacob was absolutely certain that his family would return there. He knew and can testify by his own experience that God is unwavering in his faithfulness. What God has promised, he will bring about. This is what we celebrate today in the Lord's Supper. We remember God's past faithfulness in the body broken and the blood shed for our sins. But we, like Jacob, still look forward in faith to things not yet realized to a time when we will eat this meal not just together with one another, but with our Savior, Jesus. We all, like Jacob, are still waiting. And we may die still waiting. Saints, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb standing as if it had been slain, will bring all God's promises to completion. He is our shepherd. He will lead us all the days of our lives and even into the life beyond. So may we remember above all, friends, these two things, that we are great sinners and Christ is a greater Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may that be the words of our remembrance even at our death, that we are great sinners but Christ is a greater Savior. Lord, may we rehearse your grace towards us in our sins and know that, that though we deserve no blessing from your hand, that by your simple grace, through faith, we have been saved, that this is not our own doing, but it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that none of us may boast. And so, Father, may we look ahead based on your faithfulness to the future that we await, that your faithfulness will never die. And we look forward to that day when we will eat this supper together with the Lord. It's in his name that we pray all this. Amen.